So Allie, there's been a lot of talk about spares lately, but no one's talking about how hard it is to be the spare spare. What happens if you're the spare spare? Okay, I'm talking about the spare to the spare, or who was, I guess, originally Charles's spare's spare. So what you're talking about is the unique dilemma of being Prince Edward, a.k.a. the Earl of Wessex, a.k.a. the Queen's fourth child. That's right. That's exactly who I'm talking about. (laughs) Oh, poor Edward. He doesn't get a lot of love in the discourse. No. I think Edward's newly relevant because he was a generation back trying to make it in entertainment. And given Harry and Meghan's adventures on Netflix and Spotify, Edward's kind of a somewhat cautionary, but really just a precursor to what they're going through right now. That's exactly right. He's a good example of a royal, a spare royal, who at one time was attempting to have it both ways, to be a member of the royal family, working member of the royal family, while also maintaining a private career. Uh, Tale as old as time. Tale as old as time. Didn't go so well. Yeah. Spoiler alert. He's now a full-time working royal. (laughs) I'm Mally Merriam. And I'm Eva Walchover. And this is Windsors and Losers, the weekly podcast that tells you a story about the British royal family you didn't know you didn't know. Allie, walk us through what we're going to talk about today. Okay. Firstly, who the hell is this guy? We're going to tell you more than you ever wanted to know about Second, we're going to get into his early years, his first few stabs at a career, and then thirdly, his eventual final gung-ho attempt to set up a production company, which if you've worked in the entertainment biz, you know, that is a fraught endeavor, and we will dive into that. So let's just begin. So first of all, who on earth is this Prince Edward? Well, as Eva said, he's the spare spare. He is now 58. And he was the queen's fourth kid. He was part of her second family, the second set of kids she had, Andrew and Edward, who were born like 10 years after Charles and Anne. So they grew up in what was functionally a different family. That's right. And yeah, we should clarify when we say second family, not literally a second family, same father, Prince Philip. Same mother. Same mother. But she referred to them as her second family because she had them much later than her first two. Exactly. Ingrid Seward, the royal expert and editor of Majesty Magazine, wrote in a book a few years ago that, quote, for the Queen and Philip, their second family represented a chance to start again, avoiding some of the mistakes they'd made with their elder children. So interestingly, Edward was the only child at whose birth Philip was present. And I think, you know, that's not just on Philip. I think the Queen had a certain sense of how things were done and having the father in the delivery room was not done until child four. I think Philip and her marriage had gotten to a place where they were both on the same page. So they had these two more kids and they were more present parents. I think the queen could be a little more cuddly, though, of course, that's all within the context of like your mom being queen. By cuddly, you're referring to probably like an occasional pat on the head. Or a handshake with gusto. (laughs) But they were royal kids. There was a lot of interest in them growing up. And this happened with Charles too and Anne. But when... Edward and Andrew were young. I think there was like a lot of interest in them as teens and people thought they were kind of cute, which is like, you know, this was before our time. So it's kind of hard to believe because we know them as like 50 and 60 year old men. But um, Edward definitely had like a look about him. I feel like he was blonde and he just, he looked different than the bunch. 
like, I would say he looked handsome. When I was doing some research for this episode and looking at old clips on YouTube, I was like, this is one I see it with. Yeah. If you squint, you can kind of see it. (laughs) So yada, yada, yada. Edward grows up. In 1999, he marries a woman named Sophie Reese Jones, and she also was like a precursor to Kate and Megan, a normal person. Had a career. Had a career herself, but she also is a bit of a cautionary tale because she had this thing happen where in 2001, shortly after they got married, there was this whole thing called the fake shake scandal where she was basically duped by a tabloid reporter who dressed up like a shake and went to her PR firm and, you know, dangled the prospect of a lucrative contract and kind of lowered her guard. So she shared a few things about then prime minister, Tony Blair and some nothing bad about, about Camilla and Charles. Yeah. She, she just spoke out of turn. It wasn't anything bad. I think she said that uh, Charles and Camilla would never marry as long as the queen mother is alive. She had some choice words for both Tony and Sherry Blair revealed that she was a Tory, that she was um, a supporter of the conservative party in Britain, which if you know anything about the royals, you must never express any kind of political allegiance. She wanted to try to get the first comments buried. So she agreed to another interview in a tabloid, but then like the first agreement was reneged upon and those comments were published. Anyways, it was like this whole scandal and she had to write apology letters to the Blairs and the Queen, but somehow they moved past it. And as we're learning, they all move past it. That's the the strength of the Windsors. And they just become footnotes on a podcast from two Americans in about 25 years. Um, <laughs> so they went on to have two kids, Lady Louise, Lord James. I don't, do they have titles? Yeah. So James is Viscount Severn, which my understanding is that Edward's title, that was one of his lesser titles that he was given. And then that passed on to his son. Okay. On the titles, this is one of the wildest royal stories that I have come across when Edward was getting married. I think it's a normal conversation that a a Royal has with granny or would have had with granny about the title they'll take upon marriage. And Edward became the only son of a reigning monarch going back to George the first who said, don't duke me when I get married, Earl me. And so (laughs) there was something special about this Earl of Wessex title. And we should just I'll quickly cut you off here just to say that an earl is is lower on the totem pole than a duke. So it is an essential piece of information. Yes. You're right. <laughs> um, he was offered a duke. It was assumed that he would, sorry, I should say, it was assumed by everyone that he would become a duke. And no, he became an earl, the Earl of Wessex. Now, maybe we should give some background on like what the heck Wessex is or isn't. Yeah. And you hit upon something when you say what it isn't. <laughs> So Wessex does not exist. It did at one time exist. There was a real kingdom of Wessex from 519 until 927, but since then has not existed. And Ali, let's explain why Edward chose to be the Earl of a county that doesn't exist. Well, we must remember that his wedding took place in 1999. And in 1998, the seminal (laughs) film, Shakespeare in Love, was released in theaters. And in Shakespeare in Love, one of the main characters, not incidentally played by the heartthrob Colin Firth, was called the Earl of Wessex. So papers of actual repute have reported that that is not a coincidence. 
Prince Edward was supposedly yes. going to be the Duke of Cambridge, which any royal watcher worth their salt will know is, of course, the former title of Will and Kate. Uh, but Edward chose the Earl of Wessex, which, as we remind you, Wessex hasn't been a place in over a thousand years. So I feel like that is another piece of information that proves this wasn't random. Edward, lover of theater, lover of the arts. Lover of cinema. Uh, a fine cinema. Um, it really is a relatable moment. Here he is, son of the queen, Mm -hmm. most influential family in Britain, still, like the rest of us, influenced by by the celebrities that he follows. I love it. Colin Firth had no idea the breadth and depth of his influence. Um, So over (laughs) time, it did apparently dawn on Edward that he was the only one, you know, besides the Prince of Wales, but like the only other male of his sibling set that wasn't a Duke. So I think he was like, Hey, mom and dad, like I do actually want to get duped, which is just what I'm calling getting a Duke title. And so, um, (laughs) over the years, Edward was really active in the Duke of Edinburgh, like scheme that his father had set up, which is a pretty widespread program that offers, um, help kids. Basically it offers them like opportunities to get outside and do extracurriculars. Anyway, so Edward became very involved in that over the years. And so that was kind of teeing him up to become the next Duke of Edinburgh, which would have been like a rarely sentimental gesture in the world's most famous unsentimental family. Uh, (laughs) But the queen didn't give him the title in the period between Prince Philip's passing and her own passing. So that meant, you know, the title just went back into basically the big title cauldron of, of yeah the cauldron of the reigning monarch so like charles now controls who gets the duke of edinburgh title and there was an article in the daily mail which said a source close to edward said that the lack of movement on him being granted the title duke of edinburgh from the king had not gone unnoticed so that's basically edward being salty being like dude where's my title is there ali any implication here that there's a reason why Charles would not give it to Edward? Is it part of his attempt to streamline the royal family? He's, you know, is he trying to crop out Edward and Sophie, who supposedly were the queen's favorites? No, there's no implication of that. It just, it kind of makes Charles look bad. Okay. Makes him look like a sort of mean older brother. Or that he's, yeah, like hogging all the titles. Okay, so moving on. Section two, Edward's professional life. After his dad sees him get born and he grows up 18 more years, Prince Edward went to Cambridge, which caused a bit of a stir at the time because he did not great on his exams. And I think I actually saw his exams were public knowledge. So like they were not the kind of grades that would get you into Oxbridge or any good school in the United States. So what you're saying, Allie, is that he got special treatment because he was a prince? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so he does his whole Cambridge thing, blah, blah, blah. Then he decides to go into the Marines, which like, great. This is a well-trod path. Many royal offspring make their careers in the armed forces. Charles did, Andrew did, of course, William and Harry both did. And so did Edwards. So at the beginning of becoming a Marine, one must do basic training. And four months in, Edwards like, uh, I'm going to leave. And he decided <laughs> that he didn't want to do it anymore, which like, fair enough. I wouldn't have even made it to four months in basic training. So that 
of course, recollections varied on this. The official reason was that uh, Edward, quote, did not wish to make the service his long-term career, but then a tabloid at the time said that he was quitting because it was too hard. But either way, like, we get it. You probably shouldn't commit to being a Marine unless your heart's really in it. Yeah, and there are varying accounts on how his parents reacted to this news. I guess the most obvious assumption would be that Philip being a military man himself would be deeply disappointed in his son for dropping out of basic training after only four months. But actually, supposedly he was very supportive. um, And the queen was the one who was super disappointed in her son. Apparently, Philip, prior to Edward making this decision to go into the Marines, had urged him towards a more stable line of work, namely (laughs) accounting. So who knows (laughs) what kind of read they had but i i truly truly wish that we were right now recounting the story of prince edward's career as an accountant and i wonder too like would he have been the accountant for the family for the institution or was he really imagining edward going off and working for an accountancy firm somewhere in london i have no idea but i love either of those possibilities and also like what characteristics in your child emerge where you're like you know what you just strike me as a really good accountant. You're so good with the money you don't carry or maybe there's some personality traits we just haven't seen in Edward because, um, you know, he is the spare spare. So they keep him like off on stage left. But so but as after- we know, as we know, he actually picked something, possibly the polar opposite from accountancy. <laughs> Which that is such like a royal thing where the parent is like, I think you'd be good at this. And the child's like, actually, my passion's the exact opposite of that. I think that's not even a royal thing. <laughs> that's just a thing. That's a family thing. Um, so after the Marines, he's doing his, you know, royal thing. And he's at a Buckingham Palace garden party, where as the story goes, he bumps into none other than Andrew Lloyd Webber and nabs the coveted role as a production assistant with Lloyd Webber's theater company. And I, I kid, but that actually probably is a pretty hard job to get that a lot of people want. But, you know, one conversation over crudite at a Buckingham Palace garden party and a career is born. And I I just want to read a quote from the press release that the palace released at the time. And this was as reported by the LA Times in 1988 when this happened. Quote, Buckingham Palace announced the 23-year-old prince will join Andrew Lloyd Webber's really useful theater company beginning next month as one of five production assistants, a job described by a company spokesman Monday as a low-ranking position. (laughs) These people keep it real when they want to. (laughs) So this was 1988, and there's another story, which Lord knows if this is true, but it's too good not to share. This is from The Telegraph. There's a story that after his first day, Ed comes home, sees his mom, slumps in a chair, and says, my God, I'm tired. You have no idea what a 10-hour day in the theater is like. So, you know, like so many of us, he's had a tough first day at work. So around this time, He's dabbling in freelance production as well. He gets this idea in his head to put together a program called It's a Royal Knockout. And devoted royal fans will know what this is because this was a television production that basically was one of two things that made the royals turn in on themselves and say, no more TV, no more interviews. The other was this um, documentary they'd done called Royal Family, which... Back the in the Royal 60s. Saw, yeah, mm-hmm. well, it gave too much insight into their personal lives. So uh, I guess it's a Royal Knockout was like a spin on a show that was created in the 80s where people are celebrities 
play games against each other. But the Royal Knockout version had four teams that were each captained by a royal. So you had Prince Edward, Princess Anne, Prince Andrew, and at that time, Fergie, because Andrew and Fergie were still married at this time. And this is, there's really no other way to put it, but a hellscape. You can see the whole episode on YouTube and uh, it's preposterous. Like it's not helped by the fact that it's put together in this like garish, bright 80s sort of technicolor thing. But it's filmed it's, at a theme park, Alton Towers. Yeah. And they're wearing like these long synthetic robes. And the whole thing is a parody of ancient royal times. But the problem is the royals are slotted in as real royals and they're supposed to be deference, but it's also like in a mocking way. So it was such a hot mess. It's like a really bad off night at medieval times somewhere in suburban America, except that these are real royal family members. I would like you to bid welcome to the four teams led by four members of our gracious royal family. His Royal Highness, the grand young Duke of York, marching his troops to the top of the hill and wherever else he can, in aid of the World Wildlife Fund. Her Royal Highness, the fair Duchess of York, leading forth her heroes on behalf of the International Year of Shelter for the Homeless. His Royal Highness, the tantalizingly eligible Prince Edward, coaxing courage on behalf of the Duke of Edinburgh's Award Scheme International Project 1987. And Her Royal Highness, the fair Princess Royal, spurring on her champions for the Save the Children Fund. There were two incredible juxtapositions, I just want to say. I watched this, so you don't have to. But <laughs> Anne did seem to know that being there was not a good idea. Like, I, I think her personality is, like, reticent, and she doesn't open up willingly, but... Um, Anne always knows. Yeah, here's a clip of her basically being like, I'm here in body, but not in mind. All this quasi-excitement doesn't really matter a damn to you, then. No, we're the strong, silent types. The strong, silent types. Is, is that going to describe your tactics? Strong and silent on the games? Or will it, will it be excited like Lucy eventually? No, not until later when we won. <laughs> on the other hand, however, Fergie was all in. And I actually kind of like the Fergie approach because it's like, if you're going to do it, just do it. Yeah, sell it. Sell exactly. it. Big game. Here's a clip from Fergie at the beginning when all of the team captains are getting introduced. The Duchess of York, mum. How is the state of your health? Because it was inclement this morning, I'm afraid. It's uh, very good, thank you very much. But everyone else is going to suffer after we win. Will the throat hold out? Well, of course it will hold out. Now, what are the ace cards that you're holding, man? Well, we don't, we don't have any cards because basically we're the best. We're the best blue bandits there are. Okay? Give me an L. Give me a U. Give me an E. What do you got? Big bad blue bandits! Okay, so as far as production goes, there were some logistical problems. Like it was a gray, windy, probably rainy day in England and the press that was there to cover it, which of course was the point because the four royals were all playing for charity. So it was meant to like draw attention to 
the good works they were trying to spread the word about. And the press hadn't actually been like able to watch the show getting taped live. They had to watch on some like video feed. Uh, and afterwards, Prince Edward bounds over and says something to the effect of, what do you guys think? And they uh, <laughs> didn't really respond. They <laughs> had no idea what they just watched. And then Edward got like really pissed off because they weren't enthusiastic enough. So he stomps off. And then of course, like the press has a field day reporting on his stomping off. And did he stomp off in costume? I don't know. I haven't seen a clip of that. Because that somehow really completes the picture. <laughs> um, there's a quote again from Ingrid Seward, who we've quoted throughout, but she said, quote, the queen mother who was about to celebrate her 87th birthday was incensed. She told Andrew, Edward, and Anne, who'd each captain a team along with the Duchess of York, that she'd spent years building the reputation of the monarchy with the king, only to have them try to destroy it in one evening. So all in all, not a great foray into the media. Yeah, not the most auspicious beginning of a royal trying to find their footing in the biz. We call it the biz. <laughs> okay, so one royal biographer, a fellow by the name of Ben Pimlot, which I feel like if you're born with the name Ben Pimlot, there's you only have one, one path. available for you. <laughs> Uh, so royal biographer, uh, he wrote that a critical moment in the altering image of British royalty came with the television show in 1987 called It's a Royal Knockout. It was an enthusiasm of the Queen's youngest son, Prince Edward, uh, and he was keen on a royal version of the slapstick program. It was a terrible mistake, says one of the monarch's friends. She was against it, but one of her faults is that she can't say no. Uh, you know what? I really feel for the Queen and I feel for Edward in this situation because I think this is your fourth child. You're aware of the pressures placed on your children. You really want to encourage your kids' passions. We can all relate to that. It's not like the rest and of them haven't had very public like shortcomings or totally. failures. Yeah, this is pretty benign compared to um, certain other siblings. Here's one more good line from Pimlot. He said, it made the public stunningly aware that a sense of decorum was not an automatic quality in the royal family, <laughs> which I, I feel like, that is something that needs to be said, but good God. But yeah, like, I feel like, what do you say if you're the queen? You really want to encourage your kids' passions. And um, I think it's probably one of those things where courtiers and advisors were like, oh, oh dear God, no, please don't. <laughs> and she overruled them, clearly. They're all like, you tell her, you tell her, you tell her. And everyone's like, no, I'm not going to tell her. So nobody tells it's her. It's her baby boy. Yeah, little, her baby boy. And Philip's baby boy, too. Philip was there when he was born. He can't say no. Yeah. So here we are talking about this. How many yeah. years later? 36? Don't watch it on YouTube. That's why we're talking about this today. Don't do it. Don't watch <laughs> it. Okay. So after this initial foray into the biz, Edward gets serious. And that's where we pick up at part three. Edward forming his own production company. He set up something called Ardent productions in the year of our Lord, 1993. Uh, there are reports that, you know, when he turned up to work, which I think was pretty regularly, he would be accompanied by bodyguards and he'd arrive to work at some glitzy offices in a smart part of London. And I had read something in an article where people in the industry would walk into Edward's office and be like, literally, where are they getting this money? Because everybody else worked in like a dark room with not a lot of windows and like one coffee maker in the middle. But here he's like, would anyone like an espresso? And this is a brand new production company. Yes. 
So he liked to work with his door closed. The Guardian reports that one of his coworkers <laughs> said he needs absolute silence to concentrate, which fair enough. I would say I concentrate best in absolute silence. I can't deal with the sound of typing or people chewing their food. So I relate. I don't like it when people file their nails at their oh, desk. or clip. Ooh, clip. Really bad. Yeah, I had a clipper. Oh, so fun fact, if you wanted to, uh, occasionally on eBay, his old business card will pop up from time to time. And he referred to himself as Edward Windsor, Joint Managing Director, Art and Production. So um, even when my birthday rolls around this year, no, no, no. He was not yet the Earl of Wessex. Otherwise, no doubt he would have put that on his business card. <laughs> That's true. Now, uh, what kind of things did Ardent Productions produce? Yeah, tell us, Sally. <laughs> okay, I think he started out wanting to make documentaries about just stuff that stuff was that he's into. Yeah, yeah, but like, not to brag, but I have a background in content strategy, and if I were Edward's content strategist, I'd be like, I don't know how to tell you this, but all people really want from you is stories about life as a royal. So at the beginning, he did start out making stuff that wasn't about royals, but over time, he got pushed to producing documentaries about the royals, but also hosting them. So, uh, but Ali, you're skipping over, I think I'm skipping over one of the best things he ever produced. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. There's apparently a game called real tennis. You might have like me thought that tennis was real tennis, but real tennis refers to the way tennis was played by kings hundreds of years ago on like a hard court with a hard ball. Your sock have to be pulled up to your knees. You wear all white and you also use like a wooden bracket. And so Edward's company produced a three-part series on this game called Real Tennis, which only has a few thousand players in the UK. And I think also only has 50 courts around the world. And how do I know that? Because in researching this, I saw that in 2018, Edward went on a trip to play all the real tennis courts in the world. I mean, if this isn't an example of what happens when a prince is given pots of money and allowed to start a production company, I don't know what is. The documentary about real tennis comes out. It doesn't make perhaps as big a splash as Edward is hoping. And he was quoted at the time as saying, I think we made an encouraging start, but it's a cutthroat world out there. Honestly, that might be the truest thing. Any ever said that any royal has ever said he's like a cutthroat world, but I'm a prince. <laughs> How dare the world be cutthroat to me? Uh, I'm telling my mommy. Okay, I'll stop. So then he turns to doing royal pieces because the inevitable was unavoidable at this point. My favorite of which was actually pretty cleverly called Edward on Edward, and it's Prince Edward basically doing a biological documentary about his great uncle, Edward VIII, a.k.a. Edward of Edward and Wallace, who abdicated in 1936 to, you know, marry his twice-divorced love. And uh, this is incredible, and I just want to share with you one little snippet of Edward's narration style. Thus the story comes full circle. It was from Windsor that the Duke started on his road to exile, and it was to here he returned 35 years later to be buried. But it was only after the Duchess died in 1986 that his expectations were at last fulfilled. For down there, in the shadow of Queen Victoria's and Prince Albert's mausoleum, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor lie side by side in a quiet corner of England, equals at last in the country he loved, their exile 
over. Actually, that's pretty good. And I also really like the title, Edward on Edward. Great title. Yeah, whoever titled that definitely deserved a promotion at Ardent Productions. Okay, so there were other uh, royal documentaries in which I have to think Edward pulls some strings. There's something called Windsor Restored, which is about the fire at the castle. Something called Crown and Country. Uh, I think maybe in the in England and the United Kingdom, they were a little skeptical about these endeavors, as you know, recent history shows us tends to be the case. So what does Edward do? Again, foreshadowing, he goes to America and he goes to, there's this annual convention of TV critics called Television Critic Association uh, Convention in Pasadena. He sits before a panel and the Americans just eat this up. You could totally imagine that happening, right? Of course. So he gets some money from the USA and he starts like having some cash flow, which allows him to continue producing. And this... Unfortunately for him, was the beginning of his downfall, was the beginning of the end. Yes. Um, There was an incident in 2001 where he was making something called royalty A to C for the Americans because the Americans wanted like a bunch of this royal stuff. And the story is that Edward didn't know that a camera crew was going to the University of St. Andrews to film Prince William, like inexplicably, because uh, William had just started and there had been this like large press pack not to bother him there. But for whatever reason, like... Edward's team shows up to film Wills, I call him Wills, and then Charles hits the roof. And I think that was probably the beginning of the end. No more Ardent. Productions. Because he had pissed off one of the top guys. Not a good idea. What if this is payback, Eva? We were kind of wondering why Charles wasn't giving the Duke of Edinburgh title to Edward, but what if this is a long grudge? I think we've uncovered something here. I think we've solved it. Oh my God. We've solved the mystery that no one wanted to know the answer to. (laughs) That no one knew was a mystery. That no one knew. It's because Charles is still pissed. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that isn't the only one of his punishments because under pressure from the palace, Arden agreed to stop making programs about the royals. He was cut off at the knees after that lapse in judgment of filming William at college. So So back to real tennis. Yeah, so... uh, the rest of the programs didn't do very well. <laughs> yeah. So things kind of sputtered along for a while. And mm-hmm. some of the shows that they put out around this time were, for example, a show where Edward visited a day nursery at Southampton General Hospital and discussed a spill-proof trainer cup for toddlers. Um, That's important. Yeah. So Ardent closes in 2009. And at this point, a lot of the financial information becomes available for public consumption. And in 2011, details of the liquidation were released. And the Telegraph reported at the time that the company's assets, after millions were invested, were 1,440 pounds and 27 cents. But once the bill for liquidation was paid, investors were only left with 40 pounds and 27 cents. So... That uh, is not a great ROI, but can you really put a price on the fun of real tennis? (laughs) Okay, so as time has passed, the media industry, as it is wont to do, has reflected on this uh, undertaking from Prince Edward. And The Guardian very 
soul-searchingly wrote, uh, as time has gone on, their incompetence has become more and more obvious. There've been some very small examples of vanity TV companies before, but not on this scale. Any company in any industry that's burned through that much share capital without making a profit would have been closed down by its investors years ago. They're basically saying that Arden only managed to muddle along as long as it did because of their, you know, royal joint managing director, which fair enough. I mean, it's not like it's a doctor's office. And I guess Edward had to do something to fill the time between leaving the Marines and becoming a working member of the royal family. So Exactly. So that brings harmless. us up to speed. Today, he is a full-time working member of the royal family. And honestly, I feel like he's still quite young for somebody who was the child of the queen. I know when we think about, I was thinking about this, when we think about Charles and how old he is, so he's what, 74? 500? Yeah. (laughs) The fact that Edward is in his 50s. Charles is 74 and Edward's going to be 59 in March. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's quite a gap. That is quite a gap. Throughout this whole thing, I've been very clear. I hold no cards close to my vest. I'm team Edward. I think it's great he was able to go sow his wild oats professionally before coming back, agreeing to be a full-time member of the royal family. And if I may read from his uh, bio on the royal website, it says that he maintains a strong personal interest in the arts and is a patron of organizations within this area, dot, dot, dot. Whenever possible, his royal highness greatly enjoys attending plays and concerts. I mean, I that's, like- a, that's a great life. I totally agree, Ali. And I think actually there's something about Edward and Sophie and their family in the midst of the, just the parade of stories about the Windsors that have been coming out over the last few years. They are an example of what, if you don't, of what your life could be as a spare in that he lives in a huge house. He gets to attend plays and concerts. He gets a title. He gets to live off of the family bank. And as long as you don't aspire to daily headlines, then that's a pretty good life. I've actually been very restrained in not quoting from Spare multiple times in this episode, but there was one part I would like to quote uh, from memory, which is that (laughs) Harry writes that basically being royal had rendered him otherwise unemployable. And, you know, that really stuck with me because I think that's true. That is the dilemma of being the Spare or the Spare Spare. Yeah. But Eva, okay, let's go into our winners and losers questions. Firstly, what does this tale of Prince Edward's professional career tell you about the royal family? I think what it tells me is that when you're born into that family, you're in a tough spot because either you have to be content with serving the king or queen, doing royal engagements for your entire life, or you seek out employment or fulfillment on your own, and you most likely have the opposite of imposter syndrome, which is that you think you can do anything, and um, you quickly realize that you can't, <laughs> and and that puts you in a really rough spot. You're kind of being set up for failure in a way, which I don't feel sorry for him about that, but I can just understand and empathize, I guess, with that position. What about you, Allie? Which just tells me that in this one way, royals are just like us. If you get bitten by the bug, there's nothing else you can do. Get bitten by the showbiz bug. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Who's the Windsor in this tale for you? You know what? I think it's got to be Princess Anne, who at It's a Royal Knockout somehow managed to maintain her dignity and rise above that situation 
amidst the carnage and chaos of the rest of her family. What about you? Real tennis, hands down. Prior to (laughs) undertaking research for this episode, I had no idea that was a thing. I still was like, what? Why is it named Real Tennis? And then I learned that Edward's gone to McLean, Virginia, like Georgian Court College in New Jersey. Like, uh, I know more than any woman should about Real Tennis. So for that reason, I say Real Tennis is the winner. Allie, who do you think is the loser? I would say the entire field of accounting lost a bright mind when Edward did not heed his father's advice to enter that profession. How about you, Eva? Who's the loser? Great answer. I'm going to say, I'm going to flip your answer and say real tennis is the loser (laughs) because only there are only 50 courts globally and only a few hundred people play it in all of Great Britain. And I will say probably the players are dying off every year. (laughs) Um, Yes. All right. Should we do this again? Let's. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Windsors and Losers is created and produced by us, Eva Walchover and Allie Merriam. Our episode was mixed by Kristen Muller. Give us your feedback at windsorslosers.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 